First of all, I just want to say uh, I, co I go to a great church here at Southridge. Uh, in the first service, many people heard me struggling a little bit with my voice. I've been very sick this week. And, and just in the intermission, uh, Lori Ng drove over to Tim Hortons, got me a tea with lemon, brought it back. That's a great church. I love that. Thank you, Lori. Uh, I also want to thank this church as, uh, as the, the leader at Global Aid Network for your support and partnership with us as a, as a church in the ministry we do at GAIN. Uh, GAIN is working, GAIN Canada is working in 12 different countries around the world. Uh, we do water projects in four African countries where uh, we bring well uh, to villages in rural areas and we bring the story of Jesus to those places. And uh, we work with internally displaced people in Syria and the Becca Valley in Lebanon and other places around the world. Uh, we get to serve and this part of my job is I get to go out into the field and, and work with our partners and our staff around the world. And I know that they're blessed to have partners like you guys. Uh, and our church to, uh, who support them. So thank you very much for that. Uh, before we open God's word this morning, I'd just like to pray, and, uh, and then we'll begin. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and we thank you for, uh, just even as we think this morning about Jesus and the incarnation and him coming into the world, and for what purpose, we just thank you, God, that you loved us so much that you would send your son. And God, we think of... Uh, the fact that you even give us a small part of work to do in your kingdom, to be your ambassadors and to share the gospel and to speak into the needs and lives of people. We thank you that you include us in your work, God. May we this morning just consider a little deeper how it is you want us to share. And God, may you speak in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just one thing more before I start as well. A bit of an apology. <clears throat> uh, as far as the slides go and the sort of tracking with my sermon this morning, uh, please don't hold the group at the back responsible. It was my job to get them all of the slides and all of the context for the sermon by Wednesday. Um, I was still pretty much horizontal until Thursday. Uh, came out of Africa last weekend, very sick. And uh, so they didn't get it until about 20 minutes before this message, the sermon, the, the first uh, uh, service this morning. So if they're not exactly on track with me, uh, please forgive them. Uh, my, my motivation for the, the discussion this morning, for thinking about the gospel in a holistic sense, came out of, or is coming out of a debate that's raging online right now. And it began last month when uh, John MacArthur, in a three-part blog series, came out and said, look, all this social justice stuff, all this sort of so-called good that Christians are doing, it's not the gospel. And it's actually, in his words, an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threatens the gospel, misrepresents scripture, and leads people away from the grace of God that's in Jesus Christ. And what he, what he triggered was this online debate that's been raging for about six weeks now about what is the role of the church in humanitarian work, in international development work, in social justice work. Should the church stand against racism? Uh, it's triggered a response that has... Uh, Basically, I say in some level divided some of the best known writers that are in the Christian community right now as to what side of this they're on. And is there a role for Christians in, uh, in a serving context, in a social justice context, and what would that look like? And I, I've experienced some of this in my time, in my work, and I would say there's sort of various extremes in this conversation that I've run into. And some of the extremes that I've run into is... Um, 
I know there are people out there who are Christians who are doing good all around the world, but they never mention the motivation for their good. They never mention the name of Jesus. That would be one type of extreme. Uh, I've met other groups that would say, look, we're here to help you. We have aid that will serve you, but unless you become a Christian, we're not going to give you that aid. They actually leverage the support to try to convince people to convert to Christianity. And then I'd say there's others out there who, who are preaching the word of Jesus uh, in a true sense, but they're actually ignoring the plight of the people they're preaching to, or they're refusing to acknowledge it has any importance. And as I step into that, I look at that, I think there's got to be a different answer than this sort of debate that's going on. There's got to be more than the two sides. It actually shouldn't be framed as, as social justice versus the true gospel. Because I think that in these extremes, this idea of even withholding life-giving aid to people who don't share our faith, or on the other hand, separating the message of Jesus from, from loving action is actually unbiblical. And to oversimplify the argument is to say that it's this competition between these two ideas. And so as I sat for these last six weeks, and, and because this is my field of work, I've watched very closely, and I've, I've, I've read all of the blogs and everything that's going on online, and I thought, you know, I think, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where we're actually having this debate? And part of, part of the starting point of this, I think, goes back to the 1980s. Sort of the growth of Christians involved in humanitarian action around the world and began out of the famines that took place in, in Ethiopia in the 1980s. Uh, how many people here are old enough to remember that? I know, confessional time. <clears throat> what made that a very interesting event, it wasn't the first famine. It wasn't the first time that parts of the world had slipped into crisis of, of huge scale and and you know, today we're seeing some more of those evolving. Yemen right now is something we should be paying attention to. But Ethiopia in the 1980s was the first one that was broadcast to us on live TV. It was that first time where mass media got a hold of a story and went, this is happening somewhere else in the world and you should do something about it. And you might remember the Live Aid concert and, and just this appeal that went out to people to get involved. And actually what Christians did is they began to actually go and respond which was actually quite profound. And they developed a number of what we would call now non-governmental organizations, NGOs, that, would, that went to places and responded to calamity, crisis, injustices. And those, those organizations have evolved over time. But compassionate humanitarian action seemed at every level to be consistent with, with Christian values. Because didn't Jesus actually tell us that the poor would always be with us? Or as we learned a couple of weeks ago, and it was actually a bit of an epiphany for me, I'd never thought of it before when Brent was preaching on Acts 6, that, that actually the first deacon's board was set up to care for the needs of widows. It seemed perfect for Christians to be responding to fa famine, delivering clean water, being present in the aftermath of disasters. However, what has evolved over time in some places is that we've actually developed a kind of gospel-less gospel. Uh, the help, whatever it was, from humanitarian aid, social infrastructure investment, rescuing children from injustices, uh, the slave trade and others, doing good actually started to become the ultimate good. And so we got to a place where I actually think MacArthur's statement might have been necessary to trigger the conversation. I don't agree with him all the way, but I'm glad he triggered the conversation because it got us thinking. What is it that we should do as Christians? What does it look like to live out the gospel? What is the gospel? 
even as a question. And so I want to respond this morning and think about this a little bit, <clears throat> speaking uh, out of James chapter one and James chapter two. So let's begin at the end of James chapter one, if you want to read along with me. Uh, I'll, I'm going to skip through some verses, but I'll start with verse 27, which is, uh, begins like this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Jumping ahead into chapter two, verse five. <clears throat> Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Jump down to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You say there's only one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence of that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? <clears throat> you see, his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. This is this idea uh, that is played out in Colossians of word and deed, or word and action. And, and many ways this is, I believe, where we would begin to talk about a whole gospel. It is that idea that you cannot separate faith from action, or at least the preaching from action. And so I want to think about this a little bit more, and what would this look like as we tried to play it out? And this is not just a context for the global, even though this is Mission Sunday, for a global context. This is a, this is a conversation for us here in our backyards in Langley. So the first place I want to start is actually an understanding of the world in which we live. And as much as we know this to be true, it's good to be reminded at times that we live in a broken world. We live in a world where the impact of sin is both personal, meaning sin actually tears apart at our body, at our soul, and at our mind. We are, we are completely in a place as human beings that we are the product of the fall in all, in all the parts that we are as humans. And I was just even reflecting as I was preparing to speak that one of the last times I spoke here in Southridge, I spoke about my own journey through depression, which is a deep form of brokenness that we have as human beings. And that individual brokenness is not just exclusive to ourselves. We bring that individual brokenness into the communities in which we live, into the social settings in which we interact. And so we bring that brokenness into our political spheres which I don't need to say much about that today if you're watching. We bring it into our religious spheres. We bring it into our economic spheres. Brokenness actually permeates every, every aspect of what it is to be human. It's the starting point. The interesting difference I feel between here and the developing world is we're just really good in North America at masking it. We're really good actually at covering up what brokenness looks like. We create really good facades. When you go to the developing world, one of the things we learn when we go there is 
Brokenness is unmasked in those places in a way that's very powerful. And I want to share a little bit of my own story to the first time I encountered profound brokenness. And in a lot of ways, it is what God took this place and he wrecked me. And, and part of my career story, actually. And that place is, is a place in Nicaragua called La Chereca. And I had no idea going down what God was going to teach me in this place. And, and I, that first trip, I took a few pictures. Some of those pictures I'm not sure I would actually take anymore. But I wanted to share them with you as, to start a conversation about what does brokenness look like in its most exposed form. And to me, this place is one of its most exposed forms. La Chereca, very simply translated into English, is the dump. To set a context, at the time in which we were in, started in Nicaragua in 2008, it was the least developed, second least developed country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. And inside of that context was a couple hundred acres of a city dump in Managua on which about 3,500 people lived. You guys, next slide. And so I imagine just standing out looking over this, it's just mountains and mountains of garbage and realizing in the midst of that garbage, is about 3,500 people. And beyond that, it actually wasn't just garbage. It actually destroyed the environment. The heat that would, would come out and create fires under the garbage would create smoke. There was very little um, <clears throat> vegetation that could grow there, even though there's a lake in the middle of the, of the, the dump. And in this place, that's, by the way, the first picture I took that was going in. And in that car in the head of, ahead of me, there in that little four by four is a woman named Gloria. And I want to, I'll come back to Gloria in a minute because Gloria is a profound woman because she would choose to go into this place on a regular basis and try to journey with the people that lived there. And as we, as we came into this place and I started for the first time to meet people, uh, next slide, started to meet people going about their daily life in a place that I couldn't comprehend where their economic activities was to sift through the garbage every day to try to find something of value in this place that they could turn into a subsistence living. Sometimes they could find scraps of food. Sometimes they could find things they could sell. But for somebody coming out of North America, this place was as far from my reality as you could possibly get. And I remember starting to be just impacted by it. Right? How did I get to live here? And this, was these, this is where these people live. This is where the children, and I think the children got to me the most because at this point in 2008 when I first went, my daughters were four and six. And as we got into the stories of La Chereca and we began to meet children, next slide, and just see them walking around in, in the filth and in the, there started to be a judgment that I would form. And I want to come back to that because that's an important part of what it is to understand our role as we, as we serve in places where we can't be judges, but it's hard not to be. It's hard not to think about how moms can just let a child like that walk around, uncared for, unprotected. And it gets worse. Uh, keep going. Go a couple more, please. One more. Uh, one more after that. This, this road here, there was a profound moment that took place on this road. Uh, as you see, there's, there's homes just up on the hill to the left uh, where people tried to make a living. As we were walking along this road that day, uh, a girl came, about a 15-year-old girl, came rolling down the side of the, the hill just ahead of us. She might actually be in the picture. I'm not sure. 
And as we ran up to her, we rolled her over. She was completely unconscious. Her eyes were rolled back in her head. And she had this grip on a, a little bag of glue that, that was, I don't even know how to describe the grip. Like you could not have pried that bag out of her hand. Yet she was unconscious. Her tongue was swollen. We tried to pour some water into her, t- her, her, her mouth. Uh, we carried her off to the side a little bit into the shade. And we asked what was going on. Her name was Catherine. Uh, and she was addicted to glue. The place had broken her to a point where she'd sniffed glue so much she had passed out and was, was physically ill. And with me that day was a, the second in command in the RCMP in Western Canada. And he was, happened to be on that trip with us. And as we, as we were whisked away because... The people there said, it's not safe for you to actually be here because you might get blamed for what happened to her. And we as a group were kind of whisked away. I looked up at him and he was crying. And I, you know, when you see a police officer crying, it's pretty powerful. And I said, what are you thinking? And he said, he said here's what I'm thinking. He said, in North America, we, we see brokenness like this all the time. We have drug addiction on the downtown east side of Vancouver. But what's different for, for her and for them is that those people who are drug addicted on the downtown side, downtown side of Vancouver, the very worst thing that can happen to them other than death is that they get an ambulance ride to a first world hospital and they get treated. There's nowhere for her to go because the people of La Chereca are outcasts. They don't get admitted to hospitals in Nicaragua. She had to suffer in that condition there. I remember just thinking about that going, what do I do with that? How do you even begin to help And a couple of years later, when I kept going back to this place, I knew something about the economy of it, but I'd never seen it. And a couple more slides, that one, thank you. And I convinced our translator at the time, a guy named Mario and a young pastor named Marco, I said, I actually really want to see what it looks like to be up on top. And up on top meant was where the new garbage was brought every day. And they said, no, you don't really want to see that, and we don't really want to take you there. I said, I actually do. I, 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 I just need to see it. And so they kind of dressed me up a little bit so I wouldn't stand out in a baseball hat pulled down low, my, my best clothes. And they accompanied me to the edge of where they were on top. And, and, and I think this has profoundly affected me ever since what I saw. Because the economy of the dump worked something like this. That the new garbage was the most valuable garbage because it hadn't been picked through yet. It hadn't been sifted through. And so... What groups sort of that were built around families would do is they would try to find a way to get the garbage before it got off the truck. And one of the ways they did that was to negotiate a deal with the truck drivers. And I watched this mom take her little girl, maybe six, seven years old, and trade her innocence for access to that truck. Push her up into the cab. And in that moment... I actually got to the point where I thought, I don't know what we're doing here. There's absolutely nothing we can do here. We shouldn't even be here, right? This place is so wrecked that there's no remediation that can come here. And in my thought, I, even in my, in my own thinking, I probably had reached a point where I thought, you know what, I'm not even sure God can fix this place. It's that messed up. And that was a breaking point. Because what we need to have as we move on to the second point about how do we engage with people, the second thing we need to think about is that people like this little girl in this picture, they bear the image of God. 
And the next little boy, they bear the image of God. Because that is what God says to us. He says that we have to have a biblical understanding of the human person. As broken as we are, we're made in his image and likeness. Every person, regardless of background, is entitled and worthy to the dignity that being made in the image and God, image and likeness of God comes from. They deserve an opportunity to experience the love of God. They deserve an opportunity to have the fullness of life, John 10.10, 10, that they were created for. They deserve an opportunity to flourish. Right? Every human being we engage, we actually have to come alongside them and realize they are an image bearer. That they are just like you and me. Broken in our sin, but loved by God and wanted to be, God wants them to be restored. And actually, when you think about the life of Jesus, and I'm, my third point is to understand gospel through the incarnation, and we'll get there in a minute. But if you think about the love of Jesus, he actually sought out the most unlovely of society to be with and journey with. He didn't hang out with the rich, cool people. He hung out with the unlovelies. And that teaches us something. So if we're going to understand how to take on this problem of, of this false bifurcation of social justice versus true gospel, all of that, I think it's important to step back and look a little bit at the incarnation and take a bit of a deep dive into it. And we'll see Jesus working, I think, in a very holistic way, which will get us a, give us a clue as to how I think he would like us to frame this conversation about the gospel going forward. So the incarnation... That is the story of Jesus coming into the world, being made poor. He who was rich was made poor. That idea is that Jesus loved this broken world. God loved this broken world. One of the false messages is out there is that, that God wrote off this place after the sin. That's not true. In fact, the incarnation is the best evidence we have for how seriously God takes this material world. The incarnation smashes any argument that God is only concerned for the spiritual realm and that the material is somehow, un, somehow evil or unworthy of the church's attention. After all, it was God who actually embodied himself in flesh. The Nicene Creed. He became concrete and real. It was possible to touch his wounds and hear the voice of Jesus. Real people were healed. A dead man lived again. The incarnation reveals God's love for the broken world. The gospel of Jesus then is actually the undoing of Adam. Adam wrecked it, Jesus fixed it, very simply. It's designed to restore the entirety of creation to God. And sometimes I think we forget that. The entirety of creation to God. The purpose of the incarnation, if we had time to go into Philippians chapter two, we would see that he emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself of the prerogatives that made him God. He made himself nothing for a single purpose. And the single purpose out of Philippians 2 is this, that every tongue might confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The entire purpose of the exercise was to have people redirect or invite people to redirect their lives and provide them the means by which they could do so. This was transformational development. But it was highly integrated. Jesus wasn't a preacher only. He actually took word and deed, these things that we like to separate and say, let's do word or let's do deed or maybe do one before the other. We're even guilty at that of gain. We sometimes say things like, well, we give a water well to a village so that we might be able to preach the gospel there. 
I don't think that's actually was, I don't think that, that ah, sorry. I don't think that was what Jesus' model was. I think it was highly integrated. And if we look at his life, we see him constantly engaging human beings in their triune state, meaning constantly engaging them body, mind, and soul at the same time. Never dividing it apart and always seeing the totality of the human being uh, that he was engaging. And sometimes we don't even understand exactly how his engagement works. He even confused the disciples when he would heal people and then say, well, your faith has made you whole. And the disciples are like, what does that mean? What does whole mean? But, the, but Jesus did that. He engaged with people in that sort of three-part way. And, and that, made it, that makes it a holistic sense. So if, our, if we're broken profoundly by sin, it's Jesus who has to come into all those spaces and redeem it. And he did that by showing us his care and love for us. So he did that through his actions. You know, some people you know, will say to you, well, why, why did Jesus have to come to the world? Well, Jesus had to come so that he could enter into our brokenness and journey with us and show us that he was the great physician. He had to have the three and a half years of ministry to get to the cross, but the three and a half years of ministry were actually really important. What did he do during that time? How do we see his actions with people? Right? Who did he hang out with? What did he do? He had this integrated mission all the time of the words he was teaching and the, and the actions he was uh, performing at the same time. So what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond to the life of Christ? <clears throat> I have to need to look up here to get the verse reference because I didn't write it in my notes. It's in Corinthians. Well, there we go. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 17 to 20. So this is actually the call on our life. From now on, we regard, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here's the call, verse 20, in bold. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. That's a huge task. It is a task, though, of this integrated mission. If we're going to be the Christ's ambassadors, making God's appeal, God making his appeal through us, we have to do this in an integrated way. We can't be quiet about the gospel, and we can't ignore the needs of people at a physical level. James 2 suggests this, that word and deed is actually highly interdependent, cannot be separated into its, its component parts. In fact, James actually asked this really incisive question about this to us when he essentially says, how do you know you're really saved by faith? Do you care about the poor? When you see people without resources, does your heart go out to them? If it doesn't, you might be saved, but you're lacking the evidence of salvation. Justification leads to justice. Tim Keller, who's weighed in on this debate, and I actually really like a lot of what Tim Keller has said, 
He said this, when the world sees the church doing justice, the world will get interested in justification. They will want to know what changed Christians. The answer will be justification. That to me is integrated mission. The simultaneous sharing of the work in the context of doing good and at the same time sharing the reason why we do it. The purpose behind it is the incarnation. I think this, to help us think about how to do this, I want to offer a couple of thoughts about our posture as Christians when we do this. Because one of the struggles we have that is flowing out of this uh, NGO world that came out of the 1980s, and even I think degree is what's triggering uh, John MacArthur to challenge us on this, is that we are not thinking clearly about our posture anymore. Uh, my favorite Assisi quote, it's not the one he's most known for, which he probably never said, is this one. He did say this one. It's no use walking anywhere to preach unless your walking is your preaching. What does he mean by that? He means something about the way that we engage with people is really going to be important to whether or not they will even want to hear the message of Christ from us in the first place. So if we're going to effectively live out Christ, we have to accept that in our brokenness, we're actually part of the problem. That we can take our brokenness, and even though we think we're doing good, we can then actually break other people. We can create harm. Part of the problem is we come from wealth, and we think that money fixes the situation. I would challenge you that giving isn't always a solution, and that money can't always fix the problem. Yet we think it can. Right? And we think that sometimes when we go on missions trips and things like that, we're going to fix problems. Really, I think when we go on missions trips, our task is to go and journey alongside people and let God do the work. Be present in people's lives. Don't always try to fix something. Because what we have to realize is that this world lives in an incredible state of imbalance. We, we feel good when we do good. We feel good when we give money or even when we put a well into a village. But what we have to realize is that sometimes the very system that created the imbalance, we're part of that problem, right? That when we give and feel better for giving, somewhere on the other side of the world, the street is someone who's getting further locked into a system that will not allow true flourishing of his or her nature or the opportunity to live a joyful and fulfilled life. The economy of this world is really highly integrated and our, our pleasures in this world often come at a cost in the developing world. So when we go, we are already sometimes part of the problem. We have to understand that when we get there. And if we're going to share the gospel, we need to, we need to have the posture of Christ. And so I'm going to give two thoughts on this. One, one of the postures is mercy. And uh, Ginny, Ginny painted this or created this canvas once that came out of a thought that she had. And I, I wish she could just pop up here and give me, give me the whole story behind it. But at some point, she became very interested in, in thinking about when people in certain places cry out to God to have mercy on them, what does that mean? What does it mean when we ask God to have mercy on us? And is there a difference in place and context in that? And, and that got me thinking a little bit more about mercy. And, and I did a bit of a small study on it. And I, I would suggest that mercy is this. That there's always going to be suffering, which is why mercy is essential as part of our posture if we're going to serve. So what is mercy? Mercy is, is actually taking what we have been given and being willing to freely give it away. Mercy is a commitment to live alongside others 
in a broken world, even if it will cause you to suffer. Mercy means that you actually expect suffering in your relationships and you're willing to endure it. Mercy means you're willing to live alongside the poor. Most importantly, mercy rejects a personal happiness agenda. Right? We live in a personal happiness agenda world. Everything is built around that. But if we actually have mercy, it cannot serve our personal happiness agenda. We can't have mercy so we feel good. That's not, that's not mercy. And I think finally, or two more, sorry, mercy is a commitment to forgive. Because if we're judging people, you have no time to love them. And finally, mercy is, means that you love people so much that you can't help yourself but be willing to share Jesus with them. I've had this debate with people uh, in, in my line of work who say, you know, isn't it just good enough that, that they have a well in a village or that uh, we rescued a child out of the sexual uh, slave trade? And I'm like, yeah, but do you love them? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's why we did it. Well, if you love them and you didn't share Jesus with them, do you really love them? And so that's why the integrated mission is so clearly important that we actually can't truly say we have mercy on somebody. Actually, we shouldn't, we shouldn't use that term, by the way. Uh, we can't clearly say we have mercy unless we love people so much that we're willing to share Jesus with them, which is a risk. <clears throat> I think the second posture that goes alongside of this is, is, is the servant heart or the sacrificial servant heart. Paul has this incredible statement he makes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, where he basically says, this is, this, is my, this is what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to spend everything. I'm willing to expend myself as well for you. The actual word that he uses is the same word from which we get holocaust from, meaning the total consumption of self. That's what Paul says, look, I, I, I'm just going to lay my life down. I will be completely consumed. When I'm done, there should be nothing left of me. That's no small commitment, actually. That's a sacrifice that means it has a real cost. That's a sacrifice that means it's actually going to hurt. And that's a sacrifice that means we are going to empty ourselves. Nothing left for us. The sacrifice cannot provide a benefit to the giver. If it provides a benefit to the giver, it's not a sacrifice. And I think so often, even in our postures, we go to try to serve and share the gospel. We're somehow holding something back for ourselves. We want to get something out of it. But an integrated mission or an integrated gospel starts with the question, who is my neighbor? Because aren't those the two important commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor. You guys can finish it. Who's my neighbor? My neighbor is the person on the other side of the world who is journeying in brokenness. My neighbor is the person in La Chereca. My neighbor is you. I'm your neighbor. Right? If we're going to live in mercy and sacrifice with our neighbors, we have to share Jesus and we have to do it in a highly integrated way. Words are not enough. Action and words integrated together is what God called us to. Uh, last Christmas, uh, one of the people we work with uh, overseas in Romania, uh, shared this video with us. It actually comes out of Germany. And as I watched it, it's a, it's a Christmas video. Uh, it's meant to challenge us to think about uh, what Jesus came into the world to do. I actually went, this is actually, this is actually integrated mission. This is actually whole gospel. And so I'm just going to show it to you and we'll say something about it after.
So if we see the world as broken and we see human beings as broken and we see social context as broken and we look to the life of Jesus and the incarnation as our model, we can't separate compassionate action from the transforming power of Jesus because compassionate action is the transforming power of Jesus. We can't separate it into word and deed and say we'll do one but not the other because it's conjunctive, it's word and deed together. They share the same space. How do we get to the point where we can share with people in that kind of holistic way? It requires us to journey with them. There's no quick fixes. Journey with them in a spirit of mercy, with the heart of a servant. Live in the space with them. This is the hard part of the gospel. The hard part is actually going out into those places where there is poverty, where there is injustice, where there is brokenness. The hard part is journeying alongside people that, that because of their struggle, causes you to struggle. But that's also the moment in which you can share Jesus in the most authentic way. When you respond to people and meet their physical needs, when you respond to people and meet their spiritual needs, when you respond to people and meet their social needs, you are responding with Jesus, but you have to put Jesus into the mix into the story. I have been the beneficiary of people journeying with me in my brokenness. Those people did it because they loved Jesus and because Jesus actually was part of the solution to the brokenness. So whether the injustices are racism, child sex trafficking, a lack of water, we have to respond. We're called to. We're called to be the ambassadors of Christ. We're called to provide. We're called to work against those things that caused the problems in the first place. So yes, in a place like La Chareca, if I go back there, we have to stand against that economy that is just absolutely wrong. But we have to do it because Jesus calls us to do it and put Jesus' story in the middle of it and say there is a different economy than the one that you have here. It's the economy that Jesus came to create for us. One where we can't please the Father through our actions. We need to be involved in all those things that bring good because good is important, but good is not a good in and of itself unless it involves the gospel. Compassionate, interve- compassionate intervention and the gospel can be integrated into a single mission. It's possible. In fact, reframing James 2 in a different way, I could say it this way, that the gospel, the love of Jesus is revealed through the care of the other person in the community. Or could say it this way, if the goal is to introduce Jesus to them, then through our actions, the Jesus who feeds the hungry, heals the sick, and speaks into the thoughts of the wounded, and teaches the undereducated, this is the Jesus we speak about, and we speak about him as we're giving and doing. By our actions, we introduce them to Jesus. By our words, we open their understanding. Word and deed can't be separated. They're integral. The gospel is a response to the whole person. Christ came into the world to redeem the world back to God. The gospel is a response to the body, the mind, and the soul. The gospel is the undoing of the brokenness ushered into the world by Adam. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ and the redeeming work of the cross. The gospel heals, it restores, and it saves. So the challenge that I want to offer is the challenge that that we take into the field when we go all the time at gain. And it's this, our calling, if we're ambassadors, 
is to make Christ known. Through compassionate action, defined by mercy and sacrificial service, integrated at every step with the message of the incarnation of the cross. Why? So that the kingdom of God will expand and people can flourish. John 10.10 10, 10 says that unlike the thief who comes in the night to steal and to harm, Jesus came so that we might have life and have it to its full. Right? That is the gospel that we share with people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just come before you and we, we thank you that you uh, entered into our brokenness, that you entered into our brokenness to show us that you can heal us in, each, in every way that we are broken, that there is nothing beyond your healing. That you, God, we thank you that you call us now to be ambassadors, that you call us into this work to, uh, to share just not only the physical, but also the spiritual. And God, we just pray that you will challenge each of us to take the opportunities that you share with us to share with, about you. God, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.